I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Van Ingen. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we are delighted to be joined by special guest Laura Van Proyen. Laura is the author of three collections of poetry, Our House Was on Fire, Inkblot and Altar, and most recently, Francis of the Wider Field. She is also the co-author with Gretchen Bernabe of Text Structures from Poetry, a book of writing lessons for educators. Laura serves as managing editor of the Cortland Review, and she is the founder of Next Page Press. And I am also delighted to say that she is one of my favorite all-time poets and friends. We have been in a writing group together since, I believe, ooh, Maybe 2002 or 2003, Laura. Do you remember when we met? Right around then. Yep. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we met in a a small poetry workshop at the Poetry Center of Chicago. And uh, I am pretty certain that I would not be writing 99% of my poems if it were not for Laura. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel exactly the same way, Joanne. I don't know what my work would be doing without your your help and insight um, and your friendship in poetry. So, thanks. It's great to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Would you be willing to read this poem, Elegy for My Mother's Mind? Of course. Elegy for My Mother's Mind. We are walking inside your mind where it's beginning to snow. And no matter how quickly I shovel, the path will go blank. Where you'll lose the child who picked every last tulip, you waited a solid Chicago winter to watch bloom. Lose the girl who peddled her Schwinn up and back the driveway, while you fried bacon behind the evergreens in an electric pan so the house wouldn't smell. But this night, grackles above us blacken the tree, and you hold on to me as you get into the car. Together, we go to the store where you try on every clearance-marked blouse and buy nothing. You're forgetting sadness, too, that pool where you used to swim with an armload of bricks, where no slow tug of a rope could pull you from the bottom. You're forgetting about anyone but you, when before dawn on the piano you pound great balls of fire and the old rugged cross and whistle in searing vibrato. You gift dollar store Kleenex, pour beans into wine bottles, lift my chin and say, I'm so glad you were born then your pupils widen and tunnel back to before I was here, before my brothers or sister, before you lost your father, a time of buses and rain, of radio static, and for a minute you're far from me, so I reach for your trembling hand. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That's so powerful. Maybe, Joanne, it would be great to hear a bit from you about the kind of tradition of elegy that this situates itself in. So when we say elegy, 
we are commemorating a loss and we're commemorating grief and death. And so often it's the physical death of someone we love. Um, but it isn't just a eulogy. Elegy is not the same as eulogy, right? So when we, when we offer a eulogy for someone who has died, it's often coming along with funerary rituals and rites, right? Uh, and it's often in praise of someone. But the elegy is so much bigger than that because it's about grief, but it can also be about anger and struggle um, and resistance to the fact of this loss. And the other thing that makes elegy interesting is that it doesn't just have to be for the death of a person. As in the case of this poem, what an amazing title, Elegy for My Mother's Mind. So it's the loss of the mind and of memory that's being commemorated here, but it can be the loss of a place that a person cannot no longer return to, right? It can be um, an emotion. And so I feel like it's a really broad category of poetic expression. And I just love reading elegies to see how each poet innovates within that mode in a new way. It may be interesting to know that one of the previous versions of this poem was actually called Pre-Elegy for My Mother's Mind. Thinking about it as you know, the elegy waiting to happen because um, because she still had capabilities and, and frankly still does. But I was speaking about that with someone and they said, why do you have it as a pre-elegy? Why not just a straight up elegy? And I made that change. This isn't a pre-elegy. It's not, it's not just a anticipatory poem waiting for this loss to happen. It is active. It's an active loss. Mm -hmm. That was a decision I was glad that I made and also um, that somebody pointed out to me to consider because this feels much more true. Can I ask you how you think about what ought to come as the first line of a poem? What, what's the effect you're going for? How do you know when you've got the right opening line? Uh, that's a great question, Abram. One answer to that question is, for this poem, starting sort of with action, we're walking inside your mind. Like, from the outset, the situation feels pretty clear. Another answer uh, is a nod to the poet Jenny Brown, who mm -hmm. I've thanked her through the years for saying, Laura, you should lop off the first seven lines and lop off the last seven lines and see, see what's really happening in there. That advice sometimes rings to me in my own, you know, private process where I don't need someone else to tell me to do that anymore, where um, I may really look at where does this poem really begin. And so um, it felt to me that the revisions that I made got to the essence of this, beginning with um, a little more immediacy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, too, then, to think as well about endings. There's a slightly different ending that used to come in the earlier draft. I think it's great that we could talk about drafts and how a poet goes through the process. Um, we don't often get that opportunity. 
and the 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 draft that came before or at least some at some point before ended with the the mother's knowledge with all that she knew from the past mm-hmm. and the trembling led to the knowledge and here we end with the trembling hand itself so i'm curious to know how you tweaked that end and and what you were thinking about as you did so sometimes we overwrite thinking we need to lead a reader to you know someone was thinking about this where the trembling hand was really what what the conclusion was, reaching for someone's trembling hand, that knowledge is passed through that action of the daughter holding the hand of the mother that's trembling quite clearly with all of the the reverberations of the past that were just spoken about in the previous lines. So the thinking got in the way, I thought, and the, the action and the tangibility of the image of the hand was felt truer to the poem. The trembling hand as an image brings out all of the tension of the poem, of all this knowledge and how does it pass on and all of these memories and what happens to them and reaching for them even as they're trembling. Just to step back a moment, I love what you just said about Jenny Brown's advice and how often a poem begins in one place and feels more complete in another. And I feel like that's an amazing uh, choice here because it means that the poem now begins in metaphor. And I, I think the reason that's so striking is because the metaphor then reaches out to me as a reader so that even if the you of the poem is the speaker's mother, I feel like that metaphor teaches me about how many times I've wanted to change somebody's mind about something and can't, right? How many (laughs) times I've wanted to walk into someone's mind and sweep away the snow, whatever that snow might be, and I simply can't. And, And what a, you know, what a failed enterprise that is. And in a way, the poem begins in failure. That doesn't, I don't mean to suggest it's a failed poem. I mean that it is already pointing to the limits of what's possible, and I admire that so much. I think that's what makes this poem so memorable for me is in in large part the metaphors, you know. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you achieve by addressing this poem to the you, to, to the mother. Having a mother who's experiencing dementia, I think I felt compelled to address the you because I really wanted to be able to say these things possibly to her. You know, the speaker Mm -hmm. of this poem addressing the mother in particular or the mother's mind in particular, it, it sort of is what we can't actually say to the person themselves. This isn't a conversation that can really happen I can't say this to her. The speaker of this mm-hmm. poem can't address this to the mother in particular. So it felt like a way of grappling at a very close distance, whereas a she would have distanced this even further, where I feel like the impulse of the speaker is wanting to hang on to those things, really wanting that closeness and the intimacy of a you. This is an address from me to you and a, a real close expression of of the loss that is known these things are coming 
which in some way make them even worse <laughs> because they're yeah. coming, they're anticipated. Yeah, and usually I think of elegy as a response to a loss that has occurred uh, as a way of grappling with it. But what's particularly interesting about the sort of twist of this poem is that it's both enduring that loss and anticipating it further. Yeah. It's it's in the process of the losing that we get the elegy itself. And one of the things I find really wonderful about this poem, I, think, I just think it's a really excellent sort of account of the experience of the gradual loss because uh, memories are lost at such a different rate. I was listening to my friend's uh, podcast, The Brain Made Plain. Jonathan Peel, my friend, is a neuroscientist, has this podcast. And the first episode is talking about the different ways that memories are stored. Um, it, it's mentioned at one point, you know, where short-term memories are in one place and they can be effective very differently than long-term memories. And so you begin to lose the ability to have conversations with people in the immediate, and yet they can remember things like how to play uh, piano songs from their youth, or even their own youth going so far back. And so it's, it's a very strange process of loss where deep knowledge and deep memories remain even as um, new memories are, are, are lost and never retained. Uh, and I feel like the experience of the poem is walking through this very odd experience of time overlapping and um, enfolding itself into the present and the past in very strange ways. What you said, Abram, about the podcast and the memory, the short term to the long term, in this poem where the you is playing the piano and pounding these songs, it is fascinating to me because... Um, also, this poem was written some time ago. Actually, this poem was probably written about six or so years ago, which was really at the beginning of dementia for our family. But my mother is still alive, and um, I had occasion to visit recently, and she may forget that I'm visiting because I live out of state. So when I go there, it's like a surprise every time she walks in the room and sees me. However, she still will sit at the piano and she's playing these old hymns and still remembering the words and playing. She'll read the music, but I know she doesn't need it. And um, it is fascinating to me how the short term is not accessible, but the deep, deep memory and it, that's um, one of the things that when writing this poem I was thinking about was you, losing the speak or the speaker losing the you to those deep, deep, deep memories and wondering where the speaker even fits in those memories. So my own Oma, she lived well into her 90s. The, one of the very last things she could remember was the hymns that she grew up with. She could forget that I had a conversation with her, but she could sit down and play Jesus Loves Me on the piano. And my grandma on the other side, who spoke Dutch until she was five, uh, and then spoke English for 90 years, when she was 95, started to forget the English words for things and remember only the Dutch words. Wow. I just, and I feel like this 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 poem is is such a wonderful and heart-wrenching account of what what are the memories that really lie at the core of things? And where do I, the speaker, fit in those memories? 
At what point will I be lost, but you'll still be playing the old rugged cross? You know, and what I love about the poem, too, is how many directions it pulls me in as a reader in order to understand the complexity of this experience. And I love that you do it through image and through metaphor. So look at some of uh, what's happening in the middle of the poem, right? Even the word lose is used multiple times in the poem. Lose the girl who peddled her Schwinn up and back the driveway while you fried bacon behind the evergreens in an electric pan so the house wouldn't smell. Um, And then, uh, so there are all kinds of details from the past that may be vanishing, but some of the things that are vanishing may not be entirely bad. So I love this sentence. You're forgetting sadness too. That pool where you used to swim with an armload of bricks where no slow tug of a rope could pull you from the bottom. That's an amazing uh, metaphor for the intensity of the sadness that the mother once felt but doesn't have to feel anymore, right? And then that juxtaposed against, if I'm being honest, I find the next sentence quite humorous. You're forgetting about anyone but you. I kind of love that. Um, When before dawn... (laughs) that's important that these songs when before dawn on the piano you pound great balls of fire and the old rugged cross and whistle in a searing vibrato (laughs) it's before dawn (laughs) and I love that because there's a a beautiful uh, lack of interest in what anybody else is doing in the house you know and I, I appreciate how varied the tones of the poem yeah you know the the loss of memory it's first off it's it's not linear yeah it it's it is this jumbled and the emotional responses around the loss of memory are very complex where there there are small gifts in this too when someone is living wholly in the present there's not room for the kind of daily, at least in our experience, um, the the you is generally happy. There's not a whole world of conflict around it. There, there's definitely moments where, um, you know, in real life, where the the you is aware of of the problem, and then it it becomes difficult. But then generally. It's it is this kind of like earned place to think only of yourself without regard yeah of these things you know it's not a neat path to follow there's there's a lot of complexity along the way but i think that's why the poem is such a uh... Uh, an achievement because, as I say, it does pull me in all those directions so that even if I am not present to the lived experience of the individuals in this poem, I feel like I've been on in that experience. I feel like the poem emulates some of that nonlinear movement. And yeah, I think part of the way it does that is through its structure and the you're forgetting sadness too is a kind of a sudden turn, but it's also a kind of a sudden short sentence after very long sentences and long thoughts that come before it. And and so the suddenness of that turn, which is like the suddenness of the, the turns that we experience in this mother, 
is kind of brought out by the, the, the shortness of a sentence that is in the middle of a line and we don't quite expect it. Uh, and so I feel like structure is doing a lot of work here. Can you say a word about, so what uh, we have, and, and listeners will not uh, see this in front of them, but it, this poem is written in couplets. Can you talk a little bit about how and why you structured the poem that way? What was the couplet doing for you as a way to think through this poem? I can't remember if I tried it in all different ways. I probably did. But in the end, the couplet felt to me like the right amount of time to pause to absorb what was written there. So also, these are longer lines than I often use, than I'm often writing in. And so um, I compose when I compose a poem, I'm also composing aloud. So I read in my my process, especially revision, I'm always reading aloud. And it was really about the momentum and the pauses. So it felt like the information in each of those couplets in some way needed to be next to each other, needed to be paired up. But yet, if I had one big block of lines, there wasn't enough space to let this poem breathe to really, I mean, Mm. I suppose to give the mind a little rest (laughs) between kind of these. I also felt like the couplets made possible the shifts we had just been talking about where there's unity in the couplets. It's a very controlled uniform form, but it allowed for multiple turns in that space that also was important to have pause in between each of those as those sudden turns were happening. I love what you said about how you read your work aloud as you're developing the poem. That's true in general for for all of your work? Yeah, my husband knows when I'm working because you can hear me and he knows not to come in, you know, if it sounds like I'm talking to myself in there. Well, that's amazing. And then, so that must help you think about the lineation within the couplets as well. And this, I do this all the time when I read any poem, which is even before I read this for the sense of a poem, I look at the ends of the lines to see if there's something the poem can teach me even before I'm reading for sense. And so if I look at the ends of your lines, look at what they do. Look at the story that they already tell, even before we read the whole poem, right? Snow, blank, tulip, girl, you, house, tree, go, blouse, pool, bricks, bottom, dawn, cross, Kleenex, glad, before, father, minute, hand. I feel like those words point to what's inside the lines in a really powerful way and create surprises and and emphasize things that I then look for in the body of the poem, which I just love. It also made me see how noun-heavy those, you know, it's really just nouns and pronoun and verb, which are the building blocks of most of our writing anyway. The details chosen also, I think, really matter. And when you're thinking about the construction of a poem, it's not just that she goes to the store, she goes to the dollar store for Kleenex. It's not just that she plays songs on the piano. She pounds two very different kinds of songs, Great Balls of Fire <laughs> and The Old Rugged Cross. What I think makes this a particularly good poem 
is that the experiences being described are often brought through by the sounds being used to describe them. So one particularly mm. good example of that to me is this incredible metaphor of sadness and the, and and the power of this sadness and that this sadness had over this mother and how hard it was to get beyond it. That pool where you used to swim with an armload of bricks where no slow tug of a rope could pull you from the bottom. The slow tugging of the rope is in the words themselves, and the bottom just feels so heavy by the sounds of the words being used to describe it. Well, as I said, I do compose aloud, and I am very interested in sonic association and the sonic landscape that a poem can build. So a lot of that comes into play in my revision process, where it may be choosing a different word than I had originally based on it, its sonic quality to create, for instance, that repeated no slow. And, you know, the monosyllabics there that really simplify and slow down the reading. So having those sonic associations will often drive the ultimate choices that come into the poem and honestly in the generative process. Because as I'm generating, sometimes the next word or a, a word in close proximity to whatever it is that I've just written might spring up because of some sonic similarity. Of The assonance is really, I think, what what pulls me um, into those associative places more than anything else. Well, and there, there are sounds in the poem itself, too, which is, uh, I think, particularly powerful. That is, we can hear these songs being played on the piano, but the last sound of the poem is radio static. And the last image of the poem is a soundless, trembling hand. And so the noise of the poem is going out even as the poem comes to an end. That's a beautiful observation, Abram. Thank you for noticing that, because the truth is I didn't think of that consciously in the composition. The radio static, certainly, you know, kind of the hum of what that means, that was, isn't so different than the beginning to snow at the beginning. I think of, you know, radio static, like back in the day with televisions, when it had the static, we used to call that the snow on the That's screen. Right. So, you know, there was some uh, conscious association there, but the thought of it really being muffled out to a kind of silence. I'm enjoying that read. Thank you. So, Laura, with all that you've taught us about this poem, all that we've learned, would you be willing to read this poem again? I would love to. Elegy for My Mother's Mind We're walking inside your mind where it's beginning to snow, and no matter how quickly I shovel, the path will go blank. Where you lose the child who picked every last tulip, you waited a solid Chicago winter to watch bloom. Lose the girl who peddled her Schwinn up and back the driveway while you fried bacon behind the evergreens in an electric pan so the house wouldn't smell. But this night, grackles above us black in the tree and you hold on to me as you get into the car. 
Together, we go to the store where you try on every clearance marked blouse and buy nothing. You're forgetting sadness, too. That pool where you used to swim with an armload of bricks, where no slow tug of a rope could pull you from the bottom. You're forgetting about anyone but you. When before dawn, on the piano you pound, great balls of fire and the old rugged cross and whistle in searing vibrato. You gift dollar store Kleenex, pour beans into wine bottles, lift my chin and say, I'm so glad you were born. Then your pupils widen and tunnel back to before I was here, before my brothers or sister, before you lost your father, a time of buses and rain, of radio static, and for a minute, you're far from me, so I reach for your trembling hand. That's so great. Thank you so much for reading that. It was my great pleasure. Thank you, Joanne and Abram, for having me, and thank you for all you do for poetry. To learn more about Laura's poetry, please visit her website, at lauravanproyen.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit poetryforall.fireside.fm. If you don't already subscribe, please do, and please give us a rating as well and help us to spread the good news about this podcast. Thank you for listening.